סמ"ז עמוד א', The status of frozen embryo, חלקו של עובר. In March of 2016, a Shiloh was brought before the Beisdin of Beersheba by a young widow who had two, two children uh, that were born through... Um, Uh, uh, what, is, what is it called? Uh, in vitro, IVF. A, 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 IVF, but not in vitro. Is that right? Where they fertilize the, they create the embryo outside and then blow it, and they create the embryo externally. And, the, um, and while they did that, they were able to fertilize another two eggs and freeze them. Surrogacy. No, not surrogacy. It was from, all, all from the husband. So, and she, the husband then died. She's now left with two children and two frozen embryos. And she comes to the Beisdin to ask that the Beisdin should write a will, basically, guaranteeing the inheritant rights of these two embryos when they become children. That's a, that's a shayla. The Psak Din of the Beisdin is a beautifully extensive, explored um, uh, piece about our sugya. which is where it, all, where it all comes from. So it all starts with the Posek in the Torah. V'chohen ki yikne nefesh kinyan kaspo, and v'yikra in Parshas Emrach of Beis. And if a Kohen acquires a, 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 a person, a, a material asset, hu yochal bo, that person can eat truma, v'yilid beito heim yochlu belachmo, and somebody born into his house can eat from his bread, says Rashi. V'chohen ki yikne nefesh, evet kanani shekanui legufo, That's talking about an Evid Knani, and we've spoken about what an, what an Evid Knani is, a, a non-Jewish slave, and the idea of slaves, and how very different it is uh, from, from the way we think of it. In fact, the word slave is, is such a misnomer because it means something completely different. Uh, but a, 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 an Evid Knani is a, a servant who has sold himself to the, to the owner for the purpose of his work. ויליד ביתו, אלו בני השפחות, those are children from maid servants, from female slaves, ואשת כהן אוכלת בתרומה מן המקרא הזה, שאף היא קניין כספו. And it's from this פוסק that we learn that the wife of a כהן can also eat תרומה, because he was קונה her with כסף as well, she's also called a קניין כספו. So there you see that the idea of קניין כספו doesn't mean slavery as such, it means that there's a שיבוד that I have some level of ownership in the physical being Of another, of another individual, and such a person can eat truma with the, with the Kohen. Can he sold himself or his services? He's paying back a debt, huh? No, that's an Ebed Ivri. An Ebed Kanani is the actual person who sold, because his father was an Ebed Kanani or whatever. Uh, our Mishnah says, Bat Yisrael shenisait lekohen. Jewish, uh, an ordinary Yisraelit marries a Kohen. Or mate, the Kohen dies. They don't have children. What did we say is the din? If they don't have children, then... She doesn't continue to eat Truma, she goes back to her father's house. But she, they didn't leave children, but they left her pregnant, he left her pregnant. So this is one of the key sugyas, is this, there's a parallel sugya in, in Bova Basra, that Kuf Mem Aleph and Kuf Mem Beis, where the Gemara explores the status of a, of a fetus and of, a, of an embryo. And the, uh, it, it's, it's very topical right now with the Supreme Court in the United States looking to reverse the Roe versus Wade of 1973, which gave a woman almost total rights over the decision about abortion. Um, and what's interesting to understand is that, that in our world, a 15-year-old boy starts learning these Gomorrahs and for the rest of his life, and then he becomes a physician or a politician or a judge or a lawyer 
uh, he's got it all. He knows what the situation is as as far as the status of a fetus. It's not a whole thing that you've got to start working out. He's been dealing with it already. You know, you could have a a young young Bentoro who becomes a a senator of the United States or a Supreme Court justice, and he's been dealing with this for 30 years already. He understands the principles. Um, And this is where it starts. This is the case. It's so interesting that it's such an... Uh, it looks like an obscure case, but here's the whole issue of, of his status. Her slaves can't eat truma. Uh, slaves that, she, that she's brought in as Tzon Barzel, so they really belong to the husband. The husband is deceased. So who do they belong to now? No, she doesn't inherit from her husband. They belong to the heirs, to the sons of the husband. But one of those heirs is the fetus. The Ubar has a share in those, in those slaves. Interesting concept that the Gemara already at this time is working about, that a fetus can have rights in property. The problem with an Ubar is it is posel, but it is not machil. So we have to learn... Rashi to understand that. Says Rashi, These slaves can't eat because they belong to the heirs. And the fetus also has a piece in that. And the ubar doesn't have the right to facilitate them eating truma. They need somebody to facilitate them eating truma. They're avadim, they're not kohanim. So either they belong to the kohen and, the, and he facilitates the eating of the truma. Um, but in this case, they belong to an ubar, partially. And an ubar, a fetus, can't facilitate the eating of truma. Either because, as we'll see further in the Gemara, there's a principle that an ubar in the womb of a non-kohen, which is this case, is a non-kohen. So the question now is, what is the status of this ubar? Okay, so this ubar is somewhat of a human. It's not 100% human, but it's somewhat of a human. It has certain rights, even financial rights, never, never mind the right to life. But the, um, so the one possibility, as we'll see in the Gemara, is that we hold, as long as the ubar is in the womb of the mother, her Kuhuna status is determined by the mother, not by the father, because he hasn't been born yet. And therefore, he has the din of a, of a, of a zar, of a non-Kohen. So in our posuk that we, that we learned above, heim yochlu belachmo, uh, there's a limud, yochlu doesn't mean they may eat his bread, doesn't only mean they may eat his bread, it also means heim ya'achilu belachmo. If they're yelid betor, once a child has been born, that child can facilitate the eating of truma to others who would otherwise not be able to eat truma. Um, if they get married, they can give it to their wives. If they've got avodim, they can give it to their avodim. But they have to be born before they have the ability to facilitate the eating of truma for others. Shaubar posel. What does it mean, Shaubar posel? Im bat kohen niseitli Yisrael v'nicha muuberet. If a bat kohen is married to a Yisrael, that's a reverse situation. An ordinary Jewish girl 
is a Kohen, the daughter of a Kohen, is married to an ordinary Jewish boy, and he dies, and she is Muberet. If she has a child, then she continues eating Truma with her Kohen husband. If she then she cannot eat truma, she has to stay outside of the truma fold. If she doesn't have a child, she goes back to her father and she can eat truma with him. What if she's buberit? She doesn't have a child, but she's pregnant. That's sufficiently considered. You've got a child to say you can't go back to the to the husband. So we're dealing with this whole idea of what is this ubar, and you're certainly seeing this ubar has some degree of halachic personality. But if she's a Bat Yisrael married to a Kohen and he died and she's left pregnant, that doesn't allow her to continue eating uh, truma uh, on, uh, through her husband. And the same applies to the Avadim. So this, this, this uh, Ubar, this fetus, has certain powers with respect to his mother, and, and in certain ways he doesn't have those powers and one has to weigh them up, but clearly he doesn't have the power to be machid, he only has the power to be posel. He can stop the mother's right to eat truma, but he can't initiate the mother's right or facilitate the ongoing right of the mother to eat, to eat truma. We don't have time to, to go through the, uh, the Gemara, which I've printed out, um, but the issue around, around the Gemara is really whether or not an ubar can, can be izoche, can, can acquire things. Um, and if you look in, in the sources in the second line from the Gemara, Omar Rabbah, I time, sorry, Omar Rav Yudah Mashmur on the third line, Zudiv Rabbi Yosef, Vachachamim, Omrim, Yeshlo Banim Ochlim, Mishum Banim, Enlo Banim Ochlim, Mishum Achim, Enlo Achim, etc. The whole, at the very end, the Hamazakel Ubar Kana, uh, the whole question is whether you can give a gift, whether you can gift something to an ubar, where a person can say, I want my unborn son to be the owner of this particular property when, when he's born. Uh, and that affects the question, the Gemara in Bovabasra Bova goes into the question of, what, so, so, if you can be mezake, if you can give something to an ubar, certainly an ubar can inherit, because that happens automatically. So there's a machlokis between the Rishonim. I bring, I've brought you here the riff, says Paskins like the Chachomim here that an Ubar cannot be, cannot inherit. The Rambam seems to Paskin, usually the Rambam goes like the Rif, it's a question how the Rambam actually Paskins, uh, but it seems the Rambam Paskins like Rabbi Yossi that an Ubar does have rights and can, these particular rights, and can inherit. Um, the the uh, Rashbon, the Ramban go with the Rif, and the Rosh goes with the, with the Rambam, so there's a, a lot of uncertainty as to what, what the halacha is. There's a case of Mishnah on the Rambam that kind of explains the various machlokas and Rishonim. But this particular psak din from Beersheva goes into the question, firstly, of a, of a regular Ubar, and says, well, that's an unresolved, it's a machlokas, and we have to work out how the modern poskim deal with how you operate in a situation where the halacha psukha is not clear, there's no clear shulchan oruch on it, um, there's a lot of a lot of discussion, but not a clear conclusion in how you work with that. And then the, the psak din goes on to to distinguish between an ubar and a frozen embryo. Um, and the, the, some of the distinctions are: firstly, 
does the embryo have to be visually recognizable before this question even arises? It says, He left a pregnant wife. doesn't say, doesn't say he left a fetus. He says he left a pregnant wife. So you've got to be able to know that this physical evidence, you can see she's got, she's got a, something in the stomach and that has a, a, a halachic. You don't have to relate halachically to something that's invisible. Uh, so if it's just a, a few cells in a, in a test tube, that's not something that we have to relate to halachically. He, he questions as one possibility. And the other question is, with an ubar, the natural process is going to lead to birth. So all we're saying is you're just you're speeding it up and you're saying this Ubar is naturally going to be born. So we give it the, the rights that it will inevitably have when it's born. We give it those rights already. But in the case of a fetus in the, in the laboratory, there's a whole lot that still has to happen. This is not a natural process that's going to happen inevitably. And therefore, it can't be compared to the Ubar is part of what he wants to argue. What I'm surprised was I didn't see him argue what seems to me very clear in the Gemara, but I haven't had enough time to go through the Gemara carefully. But it's worth noticing this whole, whole idea of Ubar bime'e zara zar. And whether or not we pass like that, the, the concept is still powerful. That is that the, the fetus in the, in the womb of the mother is, who is a zara, not a kohenet, that fetus is also not a kohen because it goes by the mother. And the idea here seems to be that the fetus is part of the mother. The fetus personality isn't because it's an independent being. It's part of the mother. Um, it's a living part of, part of the mother. And uh, I think there's a Rashash on Asugi as well that talks about the fact that until this child is born, based on this Gemara, that until the child is born, it doesn't relate to the father. The, the father's a coin. The, the Ubar is not a coin. Why not? Whether you're a coin or not goes after the father. The father's role only kicks in after the birth. Again, implying that until the birth, this Ubar is part of the mother. There, there are two parts to the mother, the mother herself and her Ubar. Uh, and, and that's how it's seen. But in the case where it's separate from the mother and it's in a test tube in a laboratory, there's no have a minute that we would consider this. We wouldn't even begin to consider this as having the same rights as an ubar that is in, in the womb. And of course, the big, uh, the big, big nafkamina would be with questions of aborting. Uh, and as I said, if a person has learned this all their lives, the starting point is an, is an Ubar has rights, an Ubar is a being, an Ubar is a person. Um, even if it's not 100% in certain halachot, and it's not murder in the normal sense if a Jewish physician carries out a, an abortion. So that gets very complicated, but there's no question you're dealing with some with a real human being that has a certain definition, that, that's, the, that's the way we see it naturally. The question arises, are there situations where abortion is permitted? And on what basis and on why? But your starting point is, this isn't about, you can't kill an Ubar, but what about if the Ubar is in a test tube? Does it have the same kind of status as an Ubar in the mother's womb? But it seems... Does it mean that a pregnant lady whose stomach is sticking yes, out? Yes, it's visibly, visibly well, present. We know that it's visible. Well, because until then, halakhic, it's not... Pregnant, you can't see it. We don't know then. It's, we don't, we, she knows because she hasn't had a period. But there's months. no... Ever, you can't look at it, you can't look at it halakhically. For certain reasons, that would apply. Certain chazokas, that would apply. But in terms of halakhic, you've got to look at something that is physically evident. So the... The Rishonim talk about the fact is, is it a three-month period or is it just physically physically real? It's got to be physically real in order to attach a body of halachot to it. Um, so that gets into the whole question of today, do we consider instrumental visibility as valid? So do we have to worry about things you can see with an electron microscope? 
And if you, if you use the, the, those microscopes, you can take photographs of bugs clawing, claw, crawling over everything you eat, uh, which means stop eating. So <laughs> there's a point at which Halacha says you use the eye, and what you can't see with the eye is not something that we have to halachically deal with. But there are times when we do. Questions in courts of law, in the Bateidin in Eretz Yisrael, cameras, can, what, what evidence can you use? Evidence from cameras. And, and they do play a part. We use it, but it doesn't have the same halachic status as Edus, as where you've got two, even though they're probably more accurate. Um, but, but halachically, they are said that we've got to go by what the halachas are in terms of what's, what creates halachic reality. And something that isn't visible to the eye doesn't have a, um, a halachic reality, other, other than in the case of Tuma and Tyra, etc., where there, of course, there is halachic reality to things that don't have the eye. But just an, an example, just touching, it's a beautiful sugya, it's, uh, it's deep, and there's a, as I said, there's a parallel sugya in Bavakama that one has to learn with it, but just to see how something so obscure can have something, have relevance and, and direction in issues that are so modern. Uh, and that we're dealing with all the time now in, in Bate Din and with Poskim around the world. Mm-hmm.